This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Gosselin, and Clark Judge. Just a reminder, Talk of Fame Network's brought to you by GEICO, where just 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to GEICO.com. And Ron, when should you have gone? 15 minutes ago, my friend. 15 minutes ago. Listen to Ron Borges. Save yourself some money. Our next guest, George Koontz, was one of the great offensive tackles in NFL history, going to eight Pro Bowls in the 1970s, when the Pro Bowl actually meant something to players. George was the second overall pick of the 1969 NFL Draft by the Atlanta Falcons, and as a rookie, he became both a walk-in starter and Pro Bowlers. Only two right tackles in NFL history went to more Pro Bowls than the eight George did. That would be Forrest Gregg and Roosevelt Brown, both, of course, are in the Hall of Fame. But George Koontz has never had his career discussed as either a semifinalist or finalist by the Hall of Fame Selection Committee, hard to believe. So we're here to talk about it today. George, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be with you guys. Hey, George, you've been eligible for the Hall now for 32 years, and despite those eight Pro Bowls, never been discussed as a candidate. Yet there have been lesser tackles that have been uh, enshrined. So my favorite question to Hall of Fame-worthy candidates, do you at all understand the selection process? <laughs> you know, I know that there's an eight-person senior committee, which... At uh, 32 years out, I'd probably fall under. And they submit one or two folks for suggestions to the entire group every year. Well, some one, some two, depending on the year. And then it requires, a, I think it's an 80% vote, but I'm not too sure if it's both the senior committee or the entire committee uh, to, be, have, to have that consideration. I know they also take input from players uh, from their era, but, and I don't know. Uh, other than that, I'm not too sure of the process. Neither are we, and we're on it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it, baffles, it baffles us, George. Uh, the, the Hall of Fame Selection Committee loves you know stats, and they sure love championships. 68% of all the players enshrined in Canton uh, won an NFL championship. Now, as an offensive lineman, uh, you have no stats that are, are sort of publicly known. Uh, and having spent uh, your career in, in Atlanta and in Baltimore in the 70s, you have no championship. Uh, so how is an offensive lineman with your credentials to be judged in your own opinion, uh, if you were sitting there in the room with us? Well, I, you know, I, I think what you really got to do uh, is, a, is a player and as a, as a voter is take collateral sources. I, I guess the term would be esoteric. There are a group of people, the guys that you played with in your era, that would know about you. I think championships really do help outstanding players who play for championship teams. But uh, when you get beyond that point, collateral sources are important. So the people through the NFL Players Association, the awards that they must promulgate, uh, other awards that come in that particular area that are voted on by coaches and players, those are the things that uh, if you don't know much about the individual, those collateral sources have to be the ones you go to, or you're not going to find a name. Well, George, you were uh, mentioning how difficult the process is, and Rick asked you, do you understand it? And Ron says, we don't understand it. You know what? Ron is now scrambling to understand what esoteric means. He's yes, running I am. The dictionary. <laughs> He's looking it up going, what the heck is he talking about? I, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. <laughs> you you got to dumb it down for the sports writers, you know. <laughs> We're speaking with former tackle George Koontz on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And George, as I mentioned in your introduction, you were the second overall pick of the 69 NFL draft by the Falcons, and only four tackles in NFL history have been drafted higher, but you went to an expansion team coming off a 2-12 and season, and really, it was still trying to figure out how to win. Um, so, was being the second overall pick of an NFL draft a blessing, or was it a curse? 
Well, for me, and I can speak to my situation, it was a blessing. I went to Atlanta, which is a wonderful town. You know, it was a place that it was a hotbed of football. They were getting an NFL team. Uh, they wanted to do. They wanted to see it be successful. The fans were tremendous. Uh, so, from that standpoint, it was a blessing. But I, you just can't look at the year you went there. You've got to take a look at the years that occur after you're there. You know, Joe Green was drafted fourth in our draft. Went to Pittsburgh. They had a tough year the first year. He and Terry Hanratty were drafted there by the Steelers. But when they added Bradshaw in those next few years, you could see the momentum building for the Steelers to get to those championship seasons. So, you know, that's what you've really got to take a look at. It's not You can't look at one year by itself. You've got to take a look at the draft over five or six years to see how a team has progressed. And when you see that amount of information, you know exactly what the front office is doing and what they're trying to produce. George, you were traded to the Colts in 75 for the first overall pick of the draft, which the Falcons used on Steve Bartkowski. The Colts were 2-12 and 12 without you in 74, but 10-4 and 4 with you in 1975. <laughs> and in fact, Baltimore went on to win three consecutive AFC East titles with you in the block in front. So how much fun was it playing with Burt Jones? <laughs> Burt, uh, <laughs> Burt was not only an outstanding person, an outstanding athlete. Don't forget, uh, Burt's father is Dub Jones. Dub's 92 and he was a receiver for the Cleveland Browns when Otto Graham was there. So Bert had a great football knowledge. In addition to that, don't forget, his younger brother Tom was a quarterback for Arkansas a couple years after, uh, I think, uh, when, when Bert was in the pros. So he came from a football background. He was, uh, his leadership style uh, was, uh, was straightforward. He was in your face. And, I, and that's something that, uh, that I think that a quarterback needs to be. But the other part of Bert that was really, really interesting is that he listened to his players. He listened to the guys up front. I told him on a couple of occasions when I had a read, and he used that information profitably. Now, the other part of the whole thing, in addition to Bert and what he could do in a field, were two other individuals that uh, were very personal to me. One was Ted Marchabroda. And I think Ted uh, came over from the Washington Redskins with a great offensive knowledge. It's really helped Bert. And, and Ted was a pragmatist. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew the weaknesses that he could spot him on defense. The other guy that I think is a saint uh, is Whitey Duvall, who was uh, my offensive line coach, a wonderful person, a great and outstanding coach, who knew how to hit each individual that he coached personally to make them better. So you throw that together with Bert, and uh, all of a sudden you've got something you can be pretty proud of. Hey, George, you don't have to tell us about Dub. We had Bert and Dub on the same program about a year and a half ago, and they were tremendous. Oh, they, <laughs> they were great. great. You know, Dub was great. You know, he's 92. He's 92, I know. and I think that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got him at the lumberyard. He was working. Yeah. <laughs> that was the thing that was great. He was at the lumberyard. Yeah, well, you know, Bert will, Bert will do that to you. He'll keep you working. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, George, you didn't win a playoff game in Baltimore, but what people probably don't realize is that the first two years uh, – when you lost, you lost to the Steelers, who had arguably one of the, the greatest defense ever assembled at 75, 76 uh, seasons. How challenging was it uh, blocking the steel curtain, and how do you go into a game against them convincing yourself, yeah, we can beat these guys? Yeah, well, you know, I think what you really do is, uh, as an individual, don't forget, not only did they have the front four, they had Russell, uh, Jack Ham, and Lambert. So, you know, you look at those guys, that front seven was awesome. But you, you break it down into your quadrant, and that is, I'm right tackle. My guys are Russell, Elsie Greenwood, and Joe Green. So the, the problem, what made it difficult for my side, 
was the fact that Joe Green was one of the few defensive tackles in the league that could cover a gap and a half. That means to say that, you know, not only could he take the gap on his outside, but he could go halfway over to where Greenwood was at defensive end and cover it because he was that quick. That really freed up the end. So you have to concentrate on cutting your splits down so that Joe would be relegated to a specifically smaller area and then watching what Greenwood did to see if you could actually get any tells from him. Tell means how he's lining up specifically to tell you what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So there was a very personal battle uh, as to what occurred, and you try to focus on those three guys uh, in front of you because you couldn't do anything about the backside anyway. That was somebody else's responsibility. So in dealing with the steel curtain, my goal was to try to dominate on a, on a percentage basis more often than not three guys. And George, remember that 76 game with the Steelers when the plane crashed in the upper deck after the oh, game? Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> Memorial yeah. Stadium? No kidding. You know, that's, that, you know what, and I hate to say it, but, you know, that was the highlight of the game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys got turns pretty well in that game. Um, we did. Most people, of course, George, don't realize that back in your era, the best offensive tackles play the right side, not the left side, because the best defensive ends played there. You had to block people like uh, Deacon, Carl Eller, Tutal, Bob Smith, L.C. Greenwood, going on Jack Youngblood. Um, so who was your greatest challenge? I mean, which player did you find the most difficult to block? Well, I'll tell you, and, and this has to do with what we just talked about. It, you know, Deacon Jones is a fantastic athlete. Carl Eller was a phenomenal athlete. He was more of a basketball player. Uh, too Tall and Bubba and L.C. and Jack Youngblood, you know, they were also outstanding in their own individual ways. But what made Youngblood and Jones unique is that gap and a half that Merlin Olson could cover. So you had to take a look at the tandem that played on that side. So that allowed Deacon to come up field with that head slap from the left hand. And that allowed uh, Merlin Olson to sort of plug in there and make sure that nothing came to his outside that Deacon may not cover because he's rushing upfield. Same thing with Jack, Jack Youngblood. You know, Jack had, he was a great athlete, but it, that defensive lineman on the inside freed him up to come outside. Now, Bubba didn't really have that too much, nor did too tall, because Jack Lil, or Bob Lilly played on the other side. And LC had Joe Green. So you take a look at that group, and, you know, if I were to pick two that were outstanding athletes, three, actually, would be Jones, Eller, and Youngblood. But when you get right down to it, what made them good is the fact that they had that coverage on the inside. George, you mentioned uh, Ted Marcher brought up. You know, he called you one of the greatest leader leaders he's ever coached. You were a captain at Notre Dame, captain with the Falcons, captain with the Colts. You were voted captain of the first AFC Pro Bowl team you were on. What makes a great leader on the football field? Well, and, and I appreciate uh, the compliment, the digging you did, believe me. But I think what makes it, uh, I don't think great leaders do a lot of talking. I think they show by example. You know, it, it's your demeanor. I think Marvin Powell said at one time, and I think he paid me a, one of the nicest compliments I've been paid, and that he, he said that I had a quiet aggressiveness, and that is that I knew the situation, I knew how to get it done, and I aggressively went to that task. Uh, and, I, and I appreciated, my, and I think Marvin's a great player, uh, and I just, uh, you know, I appreciated his, his observation. But I think what really makes a leader is you've got to have a willingness willingness to do more than you're asked to do. And if you can get to that level and try to do a little bit more, you may not always achieve it, but you're always trying, and your teammates see that, and they react positively to it. So as far as leadership goes, never been demonstrative in terms of trying to say big things, but they know that I'm giving an effort, and if they'd like to join in, 
that'd be great. <laughs> you mentioned something a minute ago. I, I, I just have to ask you about. You, you talked about Deacon Jones and the head slap. Uh, and everyone has heard about that, of course, and we've seen video of it. But you got up close and personal with it. Uh, what, is, what did that feel like when Deacon Jones well, it, slapped your head? <laughs> it, was, it was disorienting until you sharpened your face mask. And then, <laughs> so if, 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 uh, you know, the, the bottom line is you knew it was coming. So the first thing you had to do, uh, if you're an offensive lineman, you listen to the cadence the quarterback gives you. And it's pretty rhythmic. And you know when that last hut is coming. So depending if it's one, two, and three, you get the sequence, and you actually, you're a half a beat ahead of that hut. And when that happens, it takes the head slap out of play because you're too far back for him to reach you. Now, if a guy has a 40-inch sleeve length, he's going to have a better chance to reach out and catch you and disorient you for that split second. But you've got to listen to the cadence once you get the cadence down for a specific quarterback, you know when it's coming. You don't move on the sound. You move on the anticipation. And that's what makes you be able to get back there quicker. George Kuntz, thanks for the time. Best of luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. And thanks so much for introducing Ron to the word esoteric. Right. <laughs> I learn a word a day. That's exciting, actually. <laughs> well, I appreciate the interview, and I wish you guys all the best. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, George. Thanks, George. That was former offensive tackle George Koontz of the Atlanta Falcons and the Baltimore Colts. And I'll tell you what, guys. I can never hear enough Burt Jones stories. You know, I, I covered Burt at the end of his career in Baltimore, and I know we talked about Terrell Davis earlier, but had Burt Jones's career not been cut short by injuries, guarantee he'd be in the Hall of Fame, too. So thank you, George Koontz. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network.